have readings from two parts of the Bible this evening, Genesis chapters 6 and 7, and 2 Peter chapter 3. Firstly, Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, which can be found on page 5 of the church Bibles. Let us hear the word of God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. 
For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Then jumping to verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Then turning to Second Peter, chapter 3, where we'll read verses 1 to 10. And this can be found on page 1019 of the Church Bibles. Second Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Amen. Thank you very much. Um, it's very good to see you this evening. For what is, as Robin has said, uh, uh, I think one of the most well-known and misunderstood stories in the, in the entire Bible. Well-loved, in fact, but totally misunderstood. Noah and the Flood. Striking, even in a culture like Scotland today, where in lots of ways um, there seems to be a real effort to eradicate traces of the Bible in our culture, in our public life, in our educational life. Strangely, the story of Noah still gets a place in the nursery toy boxes and the storybooks. All those animals can still be found in the little houseboat, tiny little thing which they all fit in in a kind of cute and fun way. Apparently a big houseboat full of happy animals and a smiling old grandpa Noah is just too cute to bin. Of course, the reality of the story is a lot more serious than the impression those children's toys would give us. As we've just heard, this is a story of God bringing just judgment on the world he has made. And it is a cataclysmic judgment. So strong, in fact, that next week we will hear him saying, I'm not going to do that again. In his grace, he commits not to flood the world like that again. Now, I realize if you're new to the Bible or to Christian things, the whole talk of judgment might sound like a bit of a shocker. Does anyone really believe that anymore? What have I walked into tonight? Please stick with us, though, because actually God doing something about the evil in our world, God taking it seriously, that is a lot better than the alternatives on offer. So have to think what the alternatives are. Pretending there isn't a problem. There's no such thing as right and wrong, just matter and chemicals interacting. Or believing that humanity can sort it out ourselves, despite millennia of evidence to the contrary. Or there not being one God, there being kind of competing worldviews, just lots of different absolutes, and who knows who's right. No real justice lies that way either. It's actually no hope unless God is good enough to do something about a messy world. So tonight is going to offer us real hope, real hope both in God's goodness to judge and hope in God's grace to save. But to appreciate the grace, as Robin said, we are going to have to have a, look at, a sober look at his response to human wrong. Uh, last week, I warned us we were looking at a sober passage. Um, last week, we had the Bible's no sugarcoating analysis of human nature a kind of wide-eyed willingness to tell the truth about our hearts. That's the, the, the start of our reading this evening. If you're back in Genesis, 5, on, uh, Genesis 6, sorry, on page 5, uh, verse 5, God's analysis of the human hearts. Last week we saw the sin problem, everyone has it. The death problem, everyone has it. And tonight we're seeing God's response to universal human sin. And tonight it is the flood for grown-ups. It is the non-fluffy version of Noah and his ark. This story was not recorded just to give us something to do at bedtimes. It was recorded as a historical warning to wake us up. 
to help us see our need for a rescue, for a lifeboat, for the day when God's righteous judgment floods onto the earth. So let's pray again for God's help as we begin. Our Father, thank you that whenever we open your word, the Bible, we are hearing your voice. Please, would you speak to us now by your spirit? Please convict us of the truth of your word, the urgency of your word, and the wonderful good news that Jesus offers to all who trust him. Because we pray in his name. Amen. Well, you'll see an outline of where we're going on uh, the back of the sheet you were given on the way in. And I've put a question at the top, which is what I want to begin with, which is this. If God is there, why doesn't he do something about evil? If God is there, why doesn't he do something about evil? Now, that question comes from um, kind of different people in different ways. Sometimes it's from the philosopher or the skeptical atheist saying, look, I can prove to you, I mean, we can be absolutely sure that there's no good God in charge of this universe, like you Christians claim there is. Well, it's obvious, because the world is full of awful things happening, people doing terrible things to other people, and it continues to happen. So, therefore, logically, either God is not good, or he's not in control, he's not God. You can't have a good, sovereign God in charge of a mess like this. Either not God or not good. Now, of course, that argument makes no allowance for the biblical category of patience in a good God that we just heard about in 2 Peter. It doesn't imagine that God could be so good that he's patient with people giving us time to turn and find forgiveness before it's too late. We'll come back to that at the end. I think it's even more important, though, when the people asking the question, why doesn't God do something, are not just doing it as a philosophical inquiry or a kind of game with their Christian friend, but as a personal cry from the heart, a, a lament our brothers and sisters from Ukraine who are sheltering with us. As you see the violence and aggression being faced by your friends and your family, your countrymen, if God is there, why doesn't he stop this? Or those who've been victims of horrible crimes, especially violent crimes, if God is there, why doesn't he stop this kind of thing from happening, ever happening? A few years ago, I was in Uganda, I was speaking to a pastor who had sheltered a number of folk um, hidden in his church building while armed rebels attacked and slaughtered the villages in the area. This man was still trusting God. He was clear God was the only hope for justice. But as the tears rolled down, you could well imagine someone thinking, if God is there, why doesn't he do something about this evil, this violence? How does he let people get away with it? I think that cry comes from our hearts again and again as we discover a world that is not as fair as we feel it should be, not as kind as it could be, far more brutal than it was supposed to be. As strong people exploit the vulnerable, as rich people consume the poor, as powerful people get their way at the expense of others, why doesn't God stop it? Does he not care? Is his mind somewhere else? Does he not see? 
what we can see. Well, last week, chapter 6, verse 5, we saw that God does indeed see. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. In fact, he sees it all more clearly than we do because he can see right through to the heart how far-reaching the wickedness of humanity has actually spread. He can see it's not actually a few monsters, a few rotten apples, but actually right through the core of every human heart. Each person on the planet thinks nothing of, of pushing God off the throne, out the picture, pushing self to the front, onto the throne, and giving other people the scraps of life if I've got ever, anything left. Just look at chapter 6, verse 5 again. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This was last week. God sees it. He sees it all. See, even our best acts have mixed motives and intentions. And tonight, in our passage, verse 11, that issue of God's seeing continues. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Let's not kid ourselves that God doesn't see what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, or in North Korea, or behind closed doors in the West. He sees it all. That was last week. Actually, the piece of good news tonight, and it is good news, though it often doesn't feel like to us, the piece of good news is that when God sees it, he is not indifferent to what he sees. He's not inactive in response to what he sees. You see, the God of the Bible, the real creator God, is not amoral. He is not impersonal, just some kind of force that got the world going. He doesn't sit back, not really caring about what the kind of grasshopper humans do. I mean, they're all so small anyway. Who cares if some get squashed by others? What will be, will be. Some get lucky, some get hurt. No. God is passionately concerned about goodness and justice. God is far more appalled by greed or violence than the most outraged human protester or the most broken-hearted human victim. And so, as we saw in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, it's worth saying here that God's emotional life is not the same as ours. He's not kind of ruled or controlled by a particular feeling the way we can be. He doesn't kind of fly off the handle. He's never out of control. He's all of his attributes all the time. He's always righteous, holy, truthful, patient, loving, gracious, all the time. And he knows the end from the beginning, so he's not caught out by this. He's not scrabbling around for a plan B. But he is grieved says verse 6, by humanity's rebellion and violence. And so verse 7, he will do something about it. The Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. I'm sorry I've made them. And from verse 12, when God saw that the earth was corrupt, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This is our first point of two tonight. Tonight we've got one point about God's judgment and the other point about God's salvation. And you know, when I was first writing this talk, I was going to describe the first point as the bad news of judgment and the second point as the good news of salvation. Actually, that's wrong. Because when we stop to think about it, objectively, both of these points are good news. It is a good thing, a good thing, that God doesn't sit idly by watching violence multiply on the earth and not do anything about it. It's definitely a sobering thing. It's a scary thing. But actually, it's a good thing in a just moral universe. In fact, it's the only anchor that determines we are in a universe that's moral and just. A universe where God does care, will act. It's also the only way there could ever be permanent peace and purity in this world. That is, only by ridding the planet of violence, of exploitation, of evil, could there be permanent, lasting love and peace. Of course, we have the problem, well, how can we be safe if that kind of justice is going to sweep through? And we'll get to that in our second point. But our first big truth is still a true and good truth. Our creator will not endlessly tolerate human violence and corruption. This is our first point. Our creator will not endlessly tolerate the human violence and corruption he sees, but will bring righteous, universal judgment. Clearly, that is what's going on in the flood accounts. God bringing universal judgment, righteous judgment on the human violence and corruption he sees. But I want us to realize this first point is not purely historical. Tonight, we're not just looking backwards to this event uh, with Noah. We are looking forwards to what Jesus taught, that just as the flood brought God's sudden cataclysmic judgment in Noah's day, well, so now we are waiting. In this current period of human history, we are waiting for another day of judgment just as universal as the floods, in fact, even more so, because Jesus will judge the living and the dead, bringing them to account before God. So there's our big principle. Our creator will not endlessly tolerate human violence and corruption. Look in verse 12 about how universal both the assessment of God is and his response Verse 12, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then therefore, verse 13, God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. It's no exaggeration to describe this flood as an act of almost total decreation. So in Genesis 1, if you think back to chapter 1, verse 2, God had brought order from a watery chaos. He'd formed the earth and he'd filled it with animals and with humanity. But now he says, I'm going to wipe it back. I'll decreate it back to that watery chaos. I'm going to wipe the face of the planet clean from the violence that humanity has brought upon it. And it has been violent, actually, the last few weeks of Genesis. Chapters 3 to 6, the picture has been pretty grim. 
There was the rebellion of Adam and Eve, which turned to infighting, which turned in the next generation to murder, Cain against Abel. Then we had the brutality of Lamech, his polygamy and boasting of killing a young guy. We had the sexual sins of the sons of God last week, taking women into their harems. And God sees not just one or two bad apples. This selfishness, this cruelty, this ability to wound others with words or with worse, families fighting each other, warring factions, now comes naturally to human beings. It it fills the earth. There's that novel, Lord of the Flies. Put a load of young people in paradise, what do you get? A fight. And we adults aren't doing much better. The Lord was grieved by what he saw. He said, enough is enough. Now, I said earlier, I think we struggle often with this idea of judgment, of it being a fair thing, a good thing. Firstly, I think we need to realize who we're talking about here. This is the creator of all the earth and the creatures on it, including human beings. It's only because of him that anyone exists, which means he alone sits on the judge's bench, He has the maker's rights to assess the damage compared to his purposes for humanity. Actually, he doesn't just have the right to judge as creator, he has the power to bring about this judgment. Again, because he's the creator, the wind, the waves, the clouds, the rains, they obey him. If he says, I'm going to bring a flood of such unique proportions that the world has never seen anything like it before or since, He's more than capable of doing so. And so verse 17, verse 17 of chapter 7, verse 6, sorry, 6 verse 17. Behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. Or chapter 7, verse 11. 7 verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day... All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were open. It's like water from above and below. Rains fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the water just keeps coming. Flick over to verse 18 of chapter 7. Verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains over the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. This is describing a real event. A huge number of international cultures actually have in their folk stories a record of an ancient flood. Some of them have striking similarities to Genesis and Noah. Of course they do, because before Babel, when the nations were scattered in Genesis 11, this event had an impact on all of humanity. This really happened. See, God doesn't just warn that judgment will come. He acts. He does not endlessly tolerate human wickedness. I think we also struggle with this idea because though we may think, well, 
yeah, okay, evil is an issue and something needs to be done, we would not draw the line and say all of humanity are wicked. I think because we'd love to draw the line of right and wrong just below ourselves. But we saw last week, God sees right into the human heart, sees every heart pushing him to the side, putting self on the throne. Why are marriages so hard? Why are flat shares so hard? Why is it so hard to work in a team? at work? Why is parenting so hard? Why is international politics so hard? Why is there a climate emergency and we're doing so little to stop it? God sees there's a human heart problem at the heart of it all. And we do need to be really clear that that God doing something about it isn't just a historical thing. Jesus was really clear that this massive flood with Noah was just a foretaste of this bigger day of judgment that's to come, the day when Jesus returns. Let me read to you from Matthew 24, Jesus' teaching on his return. This is Matthew 24, verse 37. Jesus said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, that's Jesus. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I'm sure there were weddings being planned that summer in Noah's day. I'm sure they hadn't planned for rain. It never rains. Not here, not seriously. I'm sure there were guys down the pub, families sitting down to dinner, Folks getting on with the day job, just working away. Busy, busy, busy. No time to think about getting right with God right now. And then rain started coming. And kept coming. And kept coming. Until water was pouring forth, not just from above, but from below. Just a massive flood. I still remember the the day in 2004 when I first saw and heard about the tsunami in the Indian Ocean. I'd never seen pictures like it, videos like it, that this wall of water, just unstoppable wall of water, just smashing through coastal areas, just unstoppable power, just picking up trucks and boats and houses. It was untamable. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when he returns. Not that it will be a flood. The Bible's really clear. Actually, it won't be by water. It will come by fire. But he says, do make no mistake. There will be another sudden, universal, cataclysmic day like this, a day of judgment. We're tempted to scoff at that idea. We're tempted, like 2 Peter says, to to say you can't be serious. Not when normal life is going on. I mean, there's so much civilization and culture that's built up. Surely it can't all be suddenly halted. I mean, I've got library books to return. But listen to these words from 2 Peter, that third reading we had. In the last days, people will come with scoffing. They'll say, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says they deliberately overlook Genesis 6 to 8. 
that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And Peter says, by the same word, the heaven, as in God's word, God's promise, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. As in we won't expect it. Now, no doubt, Noah building a massive boat in a dry climate, nowhere near water, looked and sounded like a pretty crazy thing to do. A, a crazy thing to believe. I guess if, no one's, if, if someone comes in and they've, they've never kind of taken Jesus seriously or realized why he's worth taking seriously, I guess talk of a, a coming day of judgment may sound equally crazy. But our Creator's done it once and he will do it again. He does not endlessly tolerate evil. He can't. He won't. He's too good a God for that. Now that is good news for the universe. It's good news for justice, for moral order, for God's character. But of course it is scary news for us. It means that every human being is staring down the barrel of oblivion. At which point we do need to turn to point two and God's extraordinary grace. His grace to provide a way to be saved. This is point two. Our only hope is to trust in God's gracious salvation plan. Now in many ways at this point we are getting right to the heart of what I think the book of Genesis is teaching us. Genesis, we'll get much more time in it next year, but Genesis is teaching us that the hope in this world, the hope is not found inside ourselves, but in God and his saving grace, his promises. We like to tell ourselves to search for the hero inside yourself. Um, M people, saying that to me, uh, shows my age. Uh, children today may get not... Um, uh, Heather Small, but they may get um, Disney Junior's Lion Guard. I didn't even know this cartoon, but just listen to this song. Just look within you, the hero inside. No need to worry, hold your head up with pride. Believe in yourself, there's no need to hide. It's there within you, your hero inside. I hope M people get some credit for that. I uh, hope Disney are paying them. Now listen, I'm all for positive thinking and for good music for that matter. But the first book of the Bible says the hope in a fallen world is not to be found in the human heart, in human performance, but in the grace of God. It's in God's undeserved kindness to provide a way to be saved. In a few minutes, we're going to think about that together as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we think about Jesus' death on the cross. Actually, just before we turn there, I wonder if... As you heard the story, I wonder if you thought, actually, it does kind of sound like it's not God's grace, it's Noah being a good person. Did you hear that? Chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man. Chapter 6, verse 9. A righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Sounds like he's the good one, and everyone else is bad. Or chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And we need to understand what's going on here, what this does and doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. 
that somehow he didn't have a sinful human nature, a fallen nature like everyone else. We actually know that, and we'll see it next week, uh, because after the flood, when only Noah and his family are left, God gives the same verdict on humanity, that our hearts are still the problem, and Noah gets drunk, and sin continues. So it's not that Noah is perfect. So what is going on here? Well, the first thing to say is that Noah is being considered righteous by God here by faith. It's not that he's perfectly righteous, but he is trusting God, and particularly trusting God about how to be safe, how to be saved. One of the refrains that goes all the way through the passage is that Noah did what God said. Just look through me, chapter 6, verse 22. Uh, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him, 6.22. Or 7, verse 5. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Or 7, verse 16. Those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, Noah. And the Lord shut him in. When God told Noah how to be safe from this coming judgment, Noah trusted him, had faith. That's the faith that was credited to him as righteousness. As we heard in Hebrews 11, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this faith, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So even Noah's righteousness is not kind of absolute righteousness, it's, it's righteousness by faith, by trusting God's salvation plan. But actually, I want to say the hero of this story is not actually Noah. And the center of this story is not Noah's goodness. Um, you see, there's a shape to how this story is told. Uh, we're covering a, a couple of chapters tonight, and I thought we can't read them all, and I can't kind of walk through every verse of them. But I do just want to show you the shape of the story um, this can be a bit hard to spot uh, when we're just kind of reading it in our columns and we, when we don't read the whole thing out loud. Um, but actually, it's obvious once you see it. The shape is one of great reversal. Um, hopefully, some slides will appear in just a moment. Um, oh, they are. They have already appeared. Just not up there. Um, that's fine. Uh, so, uh, very simply, kind of the story starts with um, Noah commanded to enter the ark, and it ends with Noah commanded to exit the ark. That's fairly simple. And actually, if you think about the story, there's also a shape of the waves and the water coming up and then going down again. But actually, it's more than that. The way the story is told, really carefully told, uh, there's a kind of matching building pairs as we go in. So let me show you that. Um, so here's, uh, here's a kind of, here are the, the time markers. There's a number of time markers where we're told how long everything takes. Um, so in chapters 7, verses 4 to 10, there are seven days waiting for the flood. And then at the end, um, in chapter 8, there are seven days waiting for the flood waters to subside. Uh, then there are um, 40 days, how oh good, I can see it now, 40 days where the flood is increasing um, in chapter 7. And there are 40 days where Noah is waiting, where the flood is abating, it's going down. Um, and actually there's 150 days uh, in chapter 7, verses 19 to 24, of the water kind of just prevailing, as in being over the earth, the kind of peak of the water once it's risen in the flood. Again, that's matched on the other side of 150 days of it, of it flowing out. If you, if you scan through the text, you'll see those numbers. It's clear that the story's being told, working into the center to a kind of key turning point. In the Bible, this happens a lot. It's not the way we tell stories in the West. We tend to go for a big build-up 
and a punchline. But often in the Bible, there's a turning point, a key moment in the story, a central pivot that changes everything. So what is it? The verse in the middle is 8 verse 1. You can have a look. 8 verse 1, look with me. This is what makes all the difference. This is what turns the waters of judgment into the rescue of salvation. This is what turns the decreation of chapter 7 into the recreation of chapter 8. This is what lies at the heart of God's plan and his mercy and his salvation. 8 verse 1, God remembered Noah. That's put right in the center of this story. God remembered Noah and all the animals that were with him. Now, when it says remembered, that's not in the sense of being forgetful. Happily, God is not forgetful. Uh, Not like me. Those of you who know me well may know I have this extraordinary ability to forget things. I've forgotten sometimes where I've put my glasses and searched the house, got increasingly angry at the family for moving them, and then they're on my face, on my own face. I put them there. Um, I phone up the church office sometimes, Laura and Naomi pick up, and by the time they've picked up, I've forgotten actually why I was calling. It's very embarrassing. God is not like me, not like any human. He's never absent-minded. It's not like he looked down and he was like, oh, what's that boat? Oh, Noah! Noah! Now, this language of remembering is about God recalling his covenant promises. That is, bringing to mind the commitment he has made to this man Noah and to his family and the animals who took shelter with him. You can see the commitment. Look back with me at chapter 6, verses 18. Chapter 6, verse 18. This is really important, and we won't understand the glory of um, the Lord's Supper and the cross that it points to if we don't concentrate for the next couple of minutes. Chapter 6, verse 18. God said... I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, every living thing you shall bring in. God had a plan to save through his covenant with Noah. He made a promise, a covenant commitment to this particular person to protect life through him. Your family will be saved because of you, because of the commitment I'm making to you, Noah. And God always keeps his word. That's what the word remember is about. He remembers his covenant. He keeps his commitment to save humanity through this man, Noah, this righteous man, Noah. And again, just with the judgment of the flood, this is not just a historical lesson. This is truth for us today in 21st century Edinburgh. Because just like God made a commitment back then through Noah that he would provide safety through one man, through one rescue package, the ark of righteous Noah. Today, he said, there is one place to be safe from judgment, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who's not just righteous by faith, but absolutely righteous in every respect. Jesus, who didn't just build a big boat for seven members of his family and the animals, but has provided a lifeboat big enough for people from all tribes and tongues, nations, ages, stages, social demographics. Jesus, whose arms are wide open, offering complete forgiveness 
and protection from the coming storm of God's righteous judgment. Jesus, who on the day of judgment, God will remember. I remember my son and what he's done. I remember the promises I made. I remember the covenants I gave him. The covenant with Jesus is even better than the covenant with Noah. We've been thinking all about that in Hebrews. That's why one of the reasons why Hebrews is such an amazing book. This covenant promise that anyone who trusts in Jesus and his death on the cross is fully forgiven despite our wicked hearts, is fully safe on the coming day of God's judgment, is fully enrolled, qualified for a place in the new heavens and earth, the home of righteousness, and is being changed on the inside by God's Holy Spirit. That's the promises to Jesus. That's the covenant God will remember as we trust in him. That's why Hebrews has been so desperate to keep us trusting Jesus. Because on the final day, that is the only thing that matters. Not our reputation or our bank balance or our career prospects or our friendships in this life. Some of those may suffer, actually, as we stick with Jesus. But when the day of righteous justice comes, there really is one safe place to stand. When the rain started... Only the ark was the safe place to be. In a moment, we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper and reflect on why that is such a precious and safe place to be. But first, let me close us in in prayer. 2 Peter 3 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so, our Father, we thank you so much that in your goodness, you haven't just determined to do something about evil on this earth, but you have provided a place of shelter in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray as we turn now to reflect on his death and resurrection and coming again, we pray that you would help us to rejoice afresh at the salvation you've provided. And please help any who don't yet know that to see the urgency of trusting him. Because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.